On one of my first trips to West Africa, to uh, Burkina Faso, uh, when the pastor's school that we minister at was newly built, there was really just a one-room kind of schoolhouse with four walls, and then a pastor's house that was more of a hut, and uh, the surrounding land. And I met the pastor and his wife that were living on the property and taking care of it, Um, and he was so excited. Uh, He walked me around to show me the mango trees, and he showed me the pig shelters there on the grounds. And then he walked me into his courtyard, which was surrounded by walls and a gate. And he showed me the milking cow they had and the chickens. By the end of the tour, I looked around and realized that they had pigs outside the courtyard, outside the gates, um, and the chickens and cows were locked behind the walls of their courtyard. And so I asked him about it. I said, why is that? And he answered very quickly and to the point. He said, "Uh, we can only keep pigs outside the gates of the wall because the people in the Muslim communities that surround us won't steal pigs. They will steal the cow or the chickens. And I said, why is that? In my naivete, I didn't understand. And he said, well, because they won't eat pig because they believe it's unclean. And they would rather starve than become unclean. What an amazing thing. In a country where starvation is rampant and droughts are common, the security system that keeps the Christians' pigs safe is that they are seen as unclean. What power this idea of clean and unclean holds that that would be the case that it would literally protect these pigs against the idea of starvation, right? These folks would rather starve, they would rather die, than become unclean to their God. And if you work with other religions, even some Christians, like Seventh-day Adventists, you will find quickly that there are external things, food, dietary restrictions, that make the adherents of that religion feel or believe themselves to be clean or unclean. And this is the idea of ritual cleanliness. Now, That's not an idea that's commonly understood here in the United States, is it? But it's so very important to folks of other world religions. And I think, as we'll see today, not only do we need to know about this idea to reach people groups that are here in the United States that may not be the majority, not only do we need to know about it to reach other cultures outside of the United States, but I think that we are in a transition period even in the United States. As I work with people of younger ages, what I find is that more often than not, they're not worried about the idea of guilt with sin. They're worried about the idea of cleanliness or being unclean, feeling dirty, not being good enough for the Lord. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. Now, in many cases, uh, such as our uh, proclivity to address certain sins as more heinous than others, uh, opponents of Christianity, they look at us and they say, hey, the the text you're about to cover today, clean and unclean foods, this is a text that uh, shows that you guys are hypocrites. You have this idea of clean and unclean, and certain sins in Deuteronomy you say are still sins, but now you can eat bats if you want, right? I don't know why I'd ever eat a bat, but, you know, you get rid of certain dietary restriction laws. And in some of those cases, those opponents would be right. Evangelical Christianity often speaks and acts with incongruence. But in the case of this idea of clean and unclean, and specifically in this area of the dietary laws of the Torah, I think we can easily understand what the point and purpose of these laws are. And so that's going to be our goal today. We're going to walk through all of this this morning and look at this idea of clean and unclean in our contemporary culture. And I hope that by delving into this, you will be equipped to not only defend the faith when you're looking at certain scriptures or talking to opponents of the faith, Uh, not only will you also become more secure in your own understanding of biblical theology, but at the end of today, I want you to be able to apply this worldview, this idea of clean and unclean, into your own thinking so that you might be better equipped to evangelize the lost with this message 
that I've titled this morning of The Cleansing Work of Jesus. The Cleansing Work of Jesus. So let's get started by reading Deuteronomy 14, starting in verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. Remember, every time you see capital L-O-R-D behind it is the Hebrew name of God, the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, or Yahweh as some people say. He says, you shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Now, I talked to Seth about this this morning. We're going to have to do church discipline because obviously with that bald head, there's some sin going on there from Deuteronomy 14, but we'll just skip past that for now. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex. So you guys can still eat your ibex. The antelope and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, dang it, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales you may eat, and whatever does not have fins and scales you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all the clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, which I don't even know what that is, and the bat. And all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, as we've seen many times in Deuteronomy, do you guys love this section in your morning devotions and gather so much from it? Yes, amen, right? No cheeseburgers for you because there's a possibility you might be eating a cow in its mother's milk, right? That's why they don't have cheeseburgers in many McDonald's over in Israel. Well, what do we do with this in our contemporary culture? Well, the first thing that we have to understand uh, this morning is the covenantal and spiritual background of clean and unclean. I joke and I laugh about this, but this is actually an insanely important scripture. It gives us background for a ton of information in the rest of scripture. Without understanding this, we're going to be lost in a lot of the stories as we progress through the narrative of scripture. And so the first thing we have to understand is the covenantal and spiritual background of clean and unclean. Now, if you guys want to read an amazing short book that will open your eyes to a bit of cultural intelligence and help you to understand how the gospel reaches across all ethnicities and tribes, I would highly suggest you read a small book called The 3D Gospel. Uh, its subtitle is Ministry in Guilt, Shame, and Fear Cultures by Jason Georges. The reason I bring this book up is that we often get locked into our own worldview. We unknowingly superimpose it upon the rest of the world, thinking that they think as we do. And we do the same thing often in how we read our Bibles. But when our eyes are open to the fact that other cultures uh, actually think differently, then we begin to see through their eyes as well, and it makes it more possible for us to empathize and for us to share the gospel with them. 
This topic of clean and unclean is one that we're not super familiar with. Um, Now, Georges helps us break down all cultures into three types. First, you have guilt innocence, then you have shame honor, and then you have fear power. Now, our Western culture largely falls under which one? Out of guilt innocence, shame honor, and fear power. Which one do you think ours largely rests upon? All of you are like, this is a trick question. What is he going to say? The answer is guilt innocence. We are a heavily legal society. And much of this is, uh, comes from a great place. It comes from the fathers of the Reformation and the idea of justification, removing our debt of sin by the atoning work of Christ. And we very much view the gospel in terms of a courtroom scene. Now hear me, this is right and good and true. If we get rid of that, we kind of miss the point of the gospel. This is the core of what it is to be a Protestant, is this idea of justification by grace through faith, okay? And so I'm not getting rid of that today. Just hear me. Without this understanding of penal substitutionary work of Christ, uh, we are lost. We don't understand the gospel in truth. But then there are these other two cultural views, the idea of fear power and the idea of uh, shame honor or clean and unclean that we can see the gospel through. Now, Burkina is more of a fear power culture, but they understand shame and honor far better than we do. And the cultures with the highest shame honor paradigm in the world, can you guess where they are? Southeast Asia, right? Think about Japanese culture, doing honor to your family or bringing shame upon your family, right? Many of the Muslim cultures, think about that. A lot of times when people are caught in adultery or having uh, premarital sex, uh, the parents will say you're, you're bringing shame upon the tribe and, and there's all sorts of stuff that falls out from that. It's not that a culture views everything explicitly through one of the, the lenses, it's that they prioritize them. And so in the West... Guilt innocence is the highest prioritized view. Now, for example, um, even though honor, shame, or clean, unclean is not the main view in our culture, I want you to think just about uh, a, a few different types of people. And some of them may even be in this room. Many of you actually might have these ideas. Uh, talk to anyone who had an abusive parent figure or a parent figure that abandoned them emotionally. Often that leaves us with scarring where we feel unclean internally. We feel like there's something innately wrong with us. The question that plays over and over in our head is, why was I not good enough for my parent? Think about a person who's been molested or raped. Often these people carry a sense of being unclean with them the rest of their lives. Uh, Think about people who struggle with same-sex attraction in the church culture of the United States, right? Because of a lot of really bad stuff in the history of the church, those folks walk with a sense of shame because they have same-sex attraction, even if they're being completely obedient in their life and their activity. And we say, there should be no shame. Well, because of the church culture, there has been shame. Talk to anyone who has an addiction or an eating disorder. Talk to anyone who sits in condemnation from having an abortion. Many of you sitting in this room today, you would never in a million years get up here on stage and admit these things, but you feel an internalized sense of shame a sense of being unclean, not good enough for God. And so often we will use words in our culture like feeling dirty, feeling used, feeling gross to express this internalization of uncleanness. So even though the primary filter we look through is this idea of guilt and innocence, that Jesus has paid the debt of our sin, the gospel also reaches us at the place of feeling unclean. Now, where this connects is uh, very heavily internally is because it's a spiritual thing. 
It reaches to the innermost parts of our personhood, our soul. It's not that we're indeed physically dirty. Right? All those people that I mentioned, those people, different groups, it's not that those folks are standing and they look like, uh, who's the guy from the Peanuts cartoon that's always dusty and dirty? Right? It's not that they're physically dirty. What is it? Pigpen, right? It's not that they feel like pigpen, physically dirty, but we all, and I'll include myself in this, we feel as though our soul has become impure. And so this has very strong connections to our religious and spiritual selves. Now for those in Southeast Asia, a large part of their honor-shame paradigm comes from the idea of bringing shame to the family. And this connects religiously because it has strong connection to the fact that the family uh, ancestors are the ones that are often deified and worshipped. And for those in fear-power paradigms, the idea of unclean comes from anything that will make the powerful God you worship angry with you. Thus, the idea of Muslims refusing pork in Burkina Faso affects how their God sees them. The idea of clean and unclean comes directly from trying to appease your God, who kind of exists in this angry temperament, always ready to blow. And I think, unfortunately, many of our earthly fathers and earthly authority figures have given credence to this view by our behavior. Many of us as Christians view the God of the Bible as waiting to blow at us if we do something wrong. And that is why it's often difficult for Christians to square up their views of God from the Old Testament and the New. In the New, he's so loving. In the Old, he's about ready to slap me. But as I've tried to show you in Deuteronomy and will continue to do so, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is congruent from Old to New. He's constantly loving and compassionate, always with wrath in the background because that's what we deserve But every activity of his is to bring us into reconciliation and to redeem us because he loves us. And that wrath is very controlled. It's not out of control as many of us in the earthly realm have seen. So we must understand that this view of clean and unclean largely has to do with what effect something has uh, has on your relationship with God. This view of the word abomination, for example, is captured elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, For example, Psalm 88.8 an easy one to remember, 88.8. It says this, you've caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. That word, if you look in the notes there, can also be rendered as, uh, as a abomination. You've made me an abomination to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. This idea of being separated from God is what abomination means, of being unclean. But for the Jews, this took on even more importance, not just the pagan view of clean and unclean, For them, being ritually pure was an indicator of covenant faithfulness and a temperature gauge of the relationship with Yahweh. Look again there at chapter 14 at the words and phrases that are used here. You see right away in verse 1, you are the, um, what does it say there? Sons. It doesn't say you're the acquaintances of the Lord your God. You're the relative strangers. You're the third cousin once removed. What does it say? It says sons. Now, this phrase and idea expresses the intensely intimate and personal view that God has with his people. In Exodus, God expresses that he views all of Israel as his son, but here it's even more intense, more individual. And he says, each of you, as Israelites, are part of my family. You're my kids. And throughout Scripture, those that are God's covenant people are his children. We even see this in the New Testament. Uh, Look at John 1.12. But to all who did receive Jesus believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God's covenant people are in intense, intimate relationship with him. And so far in Deuteronomy, we've seen this theme of the Israelites as God's children twice. 
once in chapter 1 and once in chapter 5. But if you look at both of these verses, what they're saying is they're speaking to the fact that God acts towards his children, and it's about his work that he's done. The first one there in verse 131. Uh, in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. It's the activity of the father towards the child. In Deuteronomy 8.5, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Again, the father acting towards the child. But in both those places, um, it's not about the child responding to the father. Here in 14, it is. It's the correct response to God's position of, fa- of, the, of being the father. You are the sons of the Lord your God. Therefore, act a certain way in respect and love of him. But then we also see a repeated phrase here. He says, for you are to be a people holy to the Lord your God. You can see it in verse 2 and in verse 21. You can see that these act as bookends over this section that just describes all these animals we're not supposed to eat. The first time, it also has the statement, And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And this comes out of the initiation of the covenant in the book of Exodus. Uh, Let me remind you of Exodus 19, where the covenant uh, begins very strongly. He says this in Exodus 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession. There's that phrase. Among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see how this text in chapter 14 is dripping with covenantal context. Not just some random list of things you're not supposed to eat. It's dripping with covenantal context. Through Moses, God is saying, you are my chosen beloved. You are my children, my family. I have a relationship with you that I do not have with anyone else in all creation. And so, God desires for Israel to be a people that declare by their very existence the the glory of God. To declare his character and heart and to proclaim the truth that he is the one and only true God and governing king over all creation. And he wants them to remember this at the core of who they are. And what better way to get the people to remember who they are by incorporating a reminder into the very food that they eat. One commentator said this, if you want to incorporate something into the center of your life, incorporate it into the center of your kitchen first. And I think that's kind of true, right? The meals we have and the food that we share, this very much is at the heart of who we are. And so we see this all contained within this small section of text. So I'm going to, like a, a good Baptist, I'm going to give you three points here really quick. I'm going to give you a mini sermon within my, my bigger sermon, right? That's how I fit six points into three points and still seem very Baptistic. You guys got that? Okay. All right. I'm going to pull a fast one here. The first thing I want you to write down is this. Uh, I'm going to want you to write down the purpose of Deuteronomy 14, and I'm going to give you three pieces. The first thing that this section shows us is that it proclaims God's character. It proclaims God's character. And you think, Hans, how on earth does that happen? You're saying that God's character is represented by the fact that he doesn't like to eat bats? Well, no, it's, it's deeper than that. God is the creator and source of life. He is altogether holy and separate from his creation and yet invested in his creation. And he is just, and we'll see that. Let me show you. 
At the beginning of this section, there is this statement that seems like an arbitrary rule about not cutting or shaving your head. Uh, But culturally, what we know about this is that these were both practices associated with funeral rites of the surrounding pagan cultures. Someone died that was close to them, they would shave their heads and they would cut themselves. And these were actions that were attempts at causing the recently deceased relative and their other ancestors to work on their behalf. It was associated with death and trying to manipulate the spiritual realm. And this was not something God was all about. He's the God of life. He's the God of resurrection. He doesn't want anything to do with this death. And he's a God that can't be manipulated. At the end of this section, we see this odd statement about not boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. And this was, again, a very well-known pagan ritual that had immense importance, especially for pagan festivals. And so God mentions this law in two other circumstances in Exodus, both of which are dealing with laws around Jewish festivals. He's saying, uh, don't be like the pagans and do this weird food around festivals like they do. God wanted to make sure that Israel did not participate in a similar ritual. You might say that's kind of weird and again, arbitrary, uh, but it was seen as a delicacy to boil a baby goat in the very milk it was using to nurse and grow. Think about that. Baby is delivered. They take the baby. They use the same milk it's nursing on to boil it. Now, when I phrase it like that, it doesn't take much time for us to have our stomachs churn. We think, well, you go get the meat of the baby goat at this part of Roth's and you go over and get the milk over at this part of Roth's. That's not how it worked. They would literally take the baby and the mother of the baby and do this uh, ritual. We understand this when we talk about hunting laws, don't we? Can you all go out and just kill randomly any baby deer that you find or mother deer that you find? No, you can't. And so what this speaks of is this speaks of justice and humane treatment of animals. And it simply reflects God's innate sense of justice. And what's so funny is this is one of the verses I hear most often in popular culture of people who are opponents of the Bible saying, why don't you follow this verse? And the reality that we can speak to those people is, no, actually, you, you should love this verse about our God because it speaks to the fact that he is a just God. He's a God who wants to protect the vulnerable, even baby goats. That should be a good thing, right? And the large section in between speaks to the fact that God is holy and clean in a sense. There is no uncleanness in him. And so he is separate from sinfulness, just as the clean animals are separate from the unclean animals. He's separate from that that which would make him unclean. And this leads us to understand the next piece about this section. You can write this down. It calls the people to reflect that character. Because it was something they practiced regularly, it should remind them that their purpose on earth was to reflect that character. How many people outside the church hear us as if we are saying this, don't be like pagans, there is something innately wrong with them. That's how many people outside the church hear us. But this is not what God is actually trying to say. Here's a better understanding of what God is trying to say. You are all pagans at heart. You're all far from me. Those of you that I've saved, be different so that you can accurately reflect me. These comments on how not to look like pagans and what to eat so that they are seen as different, they're not simply to make eating hard because of dietary restrictions. This is not the same as being gluten-free, right? It's just not. These were to cause a people in the midst of their daily lives to meditate on the Lord as you're even making your food. 
to meditate on who he is and then to reflect him. And lastly, most importantly, this section pictures God's choice of his own special people. It pictures God's choice of his own special people. Remember what God said through Moses to the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, he said this. He said, this is why you're saved. It was not because, or this is why you're chosen as my covenant people. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Let me put it to you this way. So I'm in Taekwondo class right now, and uh, every once in a while we do this thing called the gauntlet where we have to choose teams uh, and we have to go through and hit boards and do all this crazy stuff. And so the way it usually goes is we split up into three teams, right? And some of you, you're, having, you're being triggered right now about uh, flashbacks to the playground when you play basketball, right? Choosing teams. It's the worst thing ever for some of us, right? And so we choose teams. Well, I can hit a board okay, and so I usually get chosen first. But I love, I absolutely love what happens every once in a while. Because usually it goes from biggest down to what? Smallest. And it goes from male down to female, Right? But I love every once in a while when one of the captains who gets up to choose the Taekwondo teams, he starts at the other end. The last will be first, right? And he chooses the person that absolutely has nothing and they know it's going to take them about 35 hits to get through even the lightest board. But they're doing it because we're a team and we love each other and we want to help one another, right? Well, guys, it's kind of the same thing. God didn't choose you because you would be the champion of salvation board hits, He didn't choose you because you would be the best of all missionaries. He didn't choose me because, well, he's six foot ten and people will listen to him. In fact, that actually hinders me a lot of times. People are scared of me when they don't even need to be, and so it hinders me in sharing the gospel. The Lord chose every single one of us not because there is even an ounce of goodness in us. He chose us because his sovereign grace decides who is chosen so that he can show the world that he is a good and loving God in spite of the fact that we have rebelled against him. His choice is not about us. It wasn't about the Israelites. It was about him and his character. Even if he had chosen one person, one Israelite, he still would have showed himself more compassionate than he needed to be because we all deserve the wrath of God. This pictures the fact that God's choice to save you had absolutely nothing to do with you. It was simply an expression of God's divine grace. And what you and I deserve is to be counted as unclean and separate and isolated from God and from one another. We deserve an eternity separated from our Creator. But God, in His own divine grace, reached out and chose sinful men and women to show His gracious nature. And the only reason we were chosen was because He chose us. Because He showed His grace. And so many people look at this seemingly arbitrary list of foods that are clean or unclean, and they say there has to be a pattern. There has to be a reason that some were chosen and some were not, that we can eat some birds and not bats. But you see, it's the same with salvation. The world looks at us and says there has to be a reason, or Christians look at one another and say there has to be a reason that this person was chosen. Why on earth did God choose me or choose you? Well, there are far more effective human beings than me that he could have chosen, and yet by his grace, he chose me. He saved you and me by the blood of his son Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Not so that we could say, high five, Lord, good job you brought me on your team. 
but simply to say, Lord, there's no reason you should have chosen me. You are a God of grace. And so this distinction of clean and unclean being almost randomly arbitrary, in fact, it speaks to the fact that the Israelites in covenant with Yahweh were clean simply because he chose them just as these birds and animals were clean simply because God chose them. To be unclean was to be outside of that relationship and to be given over to the truth of your individual rebellion and sin against your Creator God. And so all of us, dear church, are unclean by the original sin that courses through us from birth. All of us exist within a state of rebellion against God innately. And all of us deserve to be considered unclean by a holy God who, is rightly, who, who rightly should condemn us for our sin against Him. But the gospel speaks a different truth. It says, in his love, he chose a people to make his own. And by his blood, he has made us clean in his eyes because of his choice, because of his righteousness, because of his forgiveness. And he therefore calls us his beloved. There is nothing in us that should be saved. And yet he saved us anyway. Are you thankful for that this morning? We could have been a kite or a cormorant or a stork. But instead, we are seen as clean. We are brought into his kingdom. Well, this is good, and we now understand what it says, and we understand the theological meaning behind it. But this understanding applied to the narrative of Scripture gives us far more. That's why I wanted to spend some time establishing that, because if we follow the path of the story of redemptive history in Scripture, this is what we find. The work of Jesus Christ made us clean. The work of Jesus Christ made us clean. As we continue along in the biblical narrative, we see that this sense of clean and unclean in terms of the dietary laws parallels the exclusivity of the covenant people of God. At this point in Deuteronomy, you have two groups. You have the Gentiles who are innately unclean. And to become clean, they have to step into covenant relationship with Yahweh and operate in the covenant laws, and be part of the covenant people. And so this speaks to the exclusivity of Israel. But then this guy named Jesus shows up. He comes on the scene and he begins to throw out this idea of the distinction between clean and unclean foods not being that big of a deal anymore. Now you can imagine after thousands of years of figuring this out, this probably threw a wrench in the works, right? We read it from our perspective backwards and we go, what was the big deal? But guys, think about it. It's kind of like those of us who've gotten married, right? And you do Christmas a certain way. And then your spouse just comes in and screws it all up, right? How dare you eat this certain type of food? No, we always have hot chocolate at this point in Christmas, right? Now you can imagine that's just Christmas tradition. That's not clean and unclean. So Jesus shows up and there's this huge thing going on where these foods had become the legalistic means by which you could judge someone as clean or unclean. And rather than a picture of the fact that Israel was chosen and loved by God to be his own, they were used as this legalistic two-by-four that would batter people into being in relationship with Yahweh. And so Jesus challenges this view and proclaims a new view that struck at the heart of what the Israelites had turned dietary laws into. And so take a look with us again at Matthew, or excuse me, Mark, where we read earlier, Mark chapter 7. Go ahead and turn there. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 18. And it says there in verse 18, I'll read it again. And he said to them, 
Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And then he continues to go on and talk about all these things that come out of a person that defile them. In this one statement, Jesus, as the new and perfect lawgiver, the new and perfect Moses, clearly stated that dietary restrictions of clean and unclean food is no longer necessary. And the writer of Mark states this clearly in the scribal notation when he says, thus, he declared all foods clean. We read that and we go, okay, moving on, next verse. But guys, this was like a shifting of the tectonic plates of the Old Testament. Everybody who would be listening to him at this point would have to haul their jaw up off the ground and duct tape it to the top of their face because they would be so aghast at what he had just done. Now, why would Jesus do this? Well, because at this point in God's plan, he was going to start with his son, Jesus, and then build out the beginnings of the church, which would be the fullness of God's covenant people, full of both Jews, clean, and Gentiles, supposedly unclean. And we see this because of the story that Mark goes into directly after this statement. Look at Mark chapter 7. Remember, the writers of Scripture always had a purpose in how they wrote things. Look at verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean, notice that word, unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now pause with me for a second. Jesus is being very politically incorrect here. Who are the children based on what we've already looked at? Remember the first verse of Deuteronomy 14, sons Who are the children of God? Jews. Yeah, good job. Don't be afraid. It's okay. You can shout it out. The Jews. That would make the dogs who? The Gentiles. Everyone else. Jesus is saying, it's right to take care of the Jews, but why would I take care of you? You're a dog. Now, Jesus isn't saying this because he believes this. He's trying to get her to to state whether or not she believes that he is a God that can actually take care of the Gentiles as well. And look what she says. She answers him, yes, Lord, that's very important, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In other words, she's coming with true faith saying, I will take anything from you. I don't care if it is the last scrap of meat on the floor that has been chewed on by every child you have. I just need you. Guys, this is the heart of a true sinner one who wants to know the Lord. This is a sinner's prayer. This is a sinner's prayer. I will take anything you give me. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. In other words, he cleansed her. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This whole interchange with this Gentile woman speaks to what is going on in the redemptive history of God. The children Jesus is referring to, as you said, is the Israelites and the the sons, so to speak, from Deuteronomy 14. And Jesus uses the idea of the Jews at the time that Gentiles were dogs, unclean and unfit for the covenant people of God. But the faith of this woman shows Yahweh's character that he is a caring God, a just God, and a compassionate God. And so she says that the dogs, the Gentiles, are happy with whatever they'll receive. 
And Jesus then commends the Gentile woman for her faith and sends her on her way, healing this unclean demon within her daughter. And in this, Jesus inaugurated the Messianic age. At this point, he began the fulfillment of many of the Old Testament prophets that said God would reach even the Gentiles. Now, not in its fullness. God is not done with that. He's using the church to work on that, and it won't fully come to pass until he's returned, but he inaugurated it here. And this is something uh, that would be taken outward from Jesus by his church. Remember his command to his disciples in Acts 1.8? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Who's in Jerusalem? Primarily Jews. And in all Judea? Who's in Judea? Primarily Jews. And in Samaria? Wait a minute. Who's primarily in Samaria? Samaritans. A mixture of Gentile and Jew. And then to the end of the earth. Who's there? Us. Gentile. To take the gospel to the ends of the earth was to take the gospel, to take the truth of God to the Gentiles, this unclean group. And so there's no longer this differentiation between the Jews, the chosen ones of God, pictured by the clean food, and the Gentiles, pictured by the unclean food. And so just a little further in Acts, we see the Holy Spirit reaching out to the Gentiles and calling them to faith. And we're introduced to a Gentile centurion named Cornelius that God wanted to bring into the covenant people. But this is going to be kind of difficult because as Peter is like most of us, he's kind of blockheaded and slow at learning new things. And so the Jewish disciples, including, including uh, Peter, are still growing in their understanding of what Jesus had taught them. So the old habits and traditions of the Old Testament faith prior to Messiah are still locked in. And so God has to step in to prepare the heart of Peter so he might accept this unclean Gentile named Cornelius. Turn there with me to Acts chapter 10 and you'll see what I mean. This is in Acts 10, starting in verse 9. Acts 10, 9, it says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, like a good Jew, said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for you coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. What's he going to say? He's going to say the gospel. So he invited them in to be his guest. God uses this law of distinction between clean and unclean animals to say to Peter, Hey Pete, you know how I choose the, chose the clean animals to eat and the unclean animals to not eat. Peter, that was me choosing you, the Jews, and not the Gentiles, so that from you, a Messiah could come. But now he's here. There's no longer needing to be a distinction. 
Now all people have the potential to be made clean, Jew or Gentile. Peter gets this message so clearly that five chapters later when he is making a case to the rest of the the church for accepting the Gentiles into the church, this is what he says. Notice the wording. And he made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. No differentiation. Cleansing their hearts by faith. No longer was it an ethnic distinction. It was now a distinction of those who stepped into relationship with Christ and those who stayed away. This Messiah who had died in their place and in yours and mine, he was the way of bringing together these two seemingly different groups. And these people, now by faith, could have him as their Lord and Savior. His cleansing act of paying the price for our sins on the cross of Calvary has forever washed away the dirtiness that you and I hold in the eyes of God. And by His Holy Spirit, the Lord is even changing the unclean nature of our sinful hearts to one day fully reflect the beauty of the clean spirit and heart of Jesus Christ. I love how the Apostle John puts this idea in his letter in 1 John 1.9. It says this, If we confess our sins, He, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By the blood of Jesus, this just and life-giving God of the people of Deuteronomy, He has established a new humanity made up of both Jew and Gentiles the world over in which we are saved by grace through faith and the allegiance to Christ that comes with it. Dear church, if you have not entered into relationship with Jesus today, if you're visiting with us or maybe you're a person who's realizing, man, I don't know that I've stepped into relationship with Jesus to this level, I would love to chat with you after service. As I always offer, I would love to talk with you about what it is to be a disciple then we must realize, all of us in this room, that because of Jesus, it is clear that these laws have passed away. So while we don't need to worry about what we eat in Deuteronomy 14 terms, we must understand it in order to understand the fullness of what Christ has done for us. That Christ has literally cleansed us from our sin and allowed us to step into the fullness of relationship with Him. Because of what Jesus did, we can call ourselves the covenant people of God when prior there was no hope for you or I. This is an amazing work that God has done. And so, in one sense, the law has continued for us, and many of us don't even realize it. The law has continued for us in the fact that now we don't need to be worried about the distinction between what we eat, but there's a new law that has been pictured by God's work to actually destroy and abrogate those laws. And so I want to submit to you today that the last point I'm going to show you is this. To evangelize the lost, we still must think in terms of clean and unclean. While he's gotten away with these, uh, or he's removed these laws of what we eat and what we don't eat, the thing still stands, which is God's covenant people are to be distinct and different and set apart wholly compared to those that are unclean, which means apart from God. And so for us to evangelize those people, The idea of people who are apart from God, unclean in a sense, unclean because of their unrepentant sin, we still must think in terms of clean and unclean. Now it's so easy for us as believers to abandon the law and not think twice about it, isn't it? Isn't it? 
It's easy for us to go, Deuteronomy 14, who cares? Let's move on. But as we have already learned a bit in Deuteronomy, that can be very detrimental for us. Not only does it make it so that we don't fully understand the New Testament and what's happening, but I believe that we sometimes miss out on the motivation behind God's heart in doing the things he does. And so I believe that the motivation and picture behind the law of clean and unclean foods still applies for us, even though the actual law on the surface does not. Now let me explain what I mean before you think that I'm turning messianic here. Uh, the, The main point of the differentiation was to remind Israel that they were to be a different people. Does that still apply for us as Christians? That we are to be a different people. Does that still apply? Yes, absolutely. Is it because you don't eat bats? No, not at all. Eat bats till your heart's delight. You can have all of mine because I won't eat them. The clean and the unclean people were to be different. The Israelites were to be different because they didn't worship false pagan gods. They were to be set apart. And so we, as good Christian people, we still practice the same things just in a different way. Let's be odd in what goes on our bodies and into our bodies. Let's wear certain clothing and not other clothing. No R-rated movies, God forbid. No explicit music lyrics, only Christian radio. No drinking, no tattoos, and so on. We still do the exact same thing. We are trying to differentiate ourselves by what we do externally. And to a certain extent, that's, that's right. Not in these things I just listed, but in terms of our actions. We differentiate with material efforts not fully realizing that these things that have become the Christian subculture do not really set us apart in the way that was intended. Guys, the world does not care that you don't curse. They just don't. And they don't care that you don't listen to the hard rock station, you listen to the other station. They don't care. And they don't care that you don't watch R-rated movies. Those things do not set us apart, even though there's nothing innately wrong with those. And in a lot of cases, there are things that are good. Just to be clear, if you're a new believer, it's great to listen to Christian radio and to change what's in your mind. But if you think that is being set apart, then you're largely mistaken. We need to look back to Scripture in Deuteronomy 14 and look at how they handled the dietary laws in the New Testament to see the motivation and spirit behind the food laws as they actually were. As it transitioned into Acts, yes, they got rid of the food laws, but the law of being set apart, being clean and different still stood. Turn with me to Romans 14 and you'll see what I mean. Go to Romans 14. The idea of what to eat was still a big deal in the church at this point. And the situation here was that the Roman church had people that were eating meat that had been sacrificed to pagan idols and then it was sold at the common market and people had taken it and were serving it to other Christians. They were okay with this because they knew that the dietary laws had been removed But there were other brothers and sisters within the church who still had hearts convinced and convicted that they shouldn't be eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so Paul calls them to understand what is indeed unfit for the people of God. But what you'll notice is it's not what's being eaten, it's the surrounding nature of how we're treating one another. Look at Romans 14, starting in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God. In other words, clean and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. In other words, don't raise tradition over the people that you're trying to reach with that tradition. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. You see, what God cared about is the distinction that makes us different. And it's not what we eat, it's how we treat each other. Even in the case of what we eat. It is unfit for them to put a stumbling block in front of a brother or sister. They needed to love one another higher than any individual dietary law. Love was the highest law. Considering one another first was the highest law. And Paul even states this. Look just over on the page a little bit to Romans 13, starting in verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has what? What does it say there? The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, and he lists them off, he says, loved, uh, he says, for the commandments are, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love has no wrong to a neighbor, uh, does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so while the law of what to eat does not stand, the law, the basis behind the law still does which is we are to be different. And what is it to be different? Well, brothers and sisters, what differentiates us is not our political views. It's not what music we listen to or movies we don't watch. What differentiates us is our love, one for another, and our love for those who do not yet know Christ. And if we can understand this and put it into application, We can bring the gospel to bear in so many people's lives. Guys, this is easy to apply. When you're about to post that political statement on social media, think, is this what's differentiating me or is it my love for the people that I hope read this? When you're about to act in a certain way out in public, do you think about the act or do you think about, is this loving to the people that are surrounding me? Is this showing the love of Christ to the people that are surrounding me? When you're engaged with your roommates or your spouse or your children, think about the law that God holds you to? Am I loving them? Showing them the nature of the God that I serve? If we can understand this and fully apply it, we can bring the gospel to bear in so many people's lives. Because this is still what's needed today. Just as it was in the day of the Romans uh, that the letter was written, it's still needed today. How so? Well, many of you as Christians sit here this morning with a sense and a knowledge of what it feels like, what it feels like to be unclean. Whether that be through your own sin that has brought you shame, or maybe for some of you, it's the harm and sin that has been done to you. And either way, you feel unclean, you feel unwanted, dirty, gross, isolated. I can't tell you how often I hear these adjectives in the midst of the pastoral counseling that I do. And in this sense of unclean, it's been so internalized inside you that you don't even recognize that quiet voice in the back of your head that repeats over and over to you these lies about yourself. And this morning, I want to kill that lie that says, if the people of this church actually knew you, they wouldn't want you. That's the heart 
of what it means to feel unclean. I want to kill that voice. I want to do it with the gospel, the truth of what God thinks about you. This morning, I want to speak to you the healing truth of the gospel. For those of you who feel unclean because of your own sin, the acts you've committed, then I want you to recognize and fully accept these words that if you confess your sin, no matter how long ago it was, no matter who it's harmed, if you confess your sin, you have a chance to do so at the communion table, you have a chance to do so with us in the back as elders, then Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Guys, the sexual past you have, the abuse you've suffered, the things that you've done or that have been done to you, Jesus died for them. And he didn't say, and it continues at the end. He said, it is finished on the cross. Those sins that make you feel unclean, they're done. And God is simply waiting for you to confess these sins and step into his loving embrace. For those of you that have taken on the sin of others because of the abuse with which they hurt you, maybe you are the survivor of of spousal or parental abuse. Maybe you are the survivor of rape or sexual exploitation. Maybe you are the survivor of bullying by your peers. In all these cases and in many more, the gospel comes to you with the knowledge that you are cleansed, you are made pure by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he proclaims you a new creation. The king of heaven and earth proclaims you a new creation and no one else can say anything different. These acts of harm were not your fault. And the Lord is a God who hears the cry of the abused and desires to protect you in the love of his people. And that's what the church is to be. Dear church, many of you ask me, how can I be more active in ministry? Let me give you an amazing way to be active in ministry. Sit and hear and listen to the story of the people that surround you. Give them your complete undivided attention. Let them know that you care and that you're willing to hear everything. And then when they come to a place of trust after many, many meetings, and they feel vulnerable enough to tell you their deepest, darkest hurts and secrets, look at them with love, personify who Jesus Christ is, and let them know they're a new creation. That is the highest work of ministry. This right here, it's dog meat compared to that. And that is what the church is meant for, to be the people that love one another in spite of how broken we are. Man, if that can be what characterizes this church, praise God. But even then, even with these truths, many of you, you wonder why you can't feel it, why you can't feel clean. And this, this is why the church is so important. It's where our love for one another comes into play. When we build safe relationships, covenantally committed relationships in which one another need not be afraid of abandonment, we can then feel safe to bring these internalized messages out into the open. Some of you have worked so hard at putting them in the back of your mind that you don't even know they're there. That's one of the things I love to do is just simply ask, what's that thing in the back of your head telling you? And if you ask that of someone else, you will find the lies that the enemy has put in place. And that is your chance to speak the truth of the gospel that the person sitting in front of you is forgiven and loved and a new creation. It's in those moments of vulnerability and transparency that our love for each other in spite of what we know about one another, oh man, that's when healing begins. Dear church, 
If we can be a people, be the people that God calls us to be, truly differentiated and changed and separate from the world because of our love for one another, whether we're dealing with each other or the person sitting in front of us that doesn't know Jesus at all, if we can be the people God calls us to be, the community that can care for them and show them love even in the midst of their silent shame and feelings of worthlessness, well, those people will find hope in the gospel. This isn't some mamby-pamby therapeutic gospel I'm peddling to you. This is the heart of what the church is supposed to be. Jesus' blood is what cleanses us from our sins, and we are the ones that take that message to the people. And so often I see us saying, did you know that Jesus forgives you and died for you? Great. All right, moving on to the next person. And that person is sitting there going, I know that that's the truth. I want to accept it, but I don't actually know what love feels like because I've only ever existed in broken relationship. Well, that's the job of the church, brothers and sisters. Sit in that place, help them understand what it is to actually be loved, even though they're fully known. And I want us to be a church full of individuals that are no longer afraid of being fully known. As you take this idea of being fully known and yet being fully loved outside these four walls, you will find that your love for a lost and dying world, it'll be confusing to non-believers. Wait, you're a Christian and you're not condemning me? That's kind of attractive. I might want to know more about that. And those that know your love will ask you for a reason for the hope that you have and why you are different Not even just different from the world, but guess what they'll say? You're different from all the other Christians I know. And you'll be able to tell them that the blood of Christ has cleansed them from all unrighteousness. That he has brought them into a community of sinners who are made new if they give their allegiance to Jesus Christ and bow the knee saying, I am a sinner in need of the crumbs of grace that fall from your table. This is the message we can take to people. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has made you clean. Take that message to the world around you and call them to Christ so they can experience what it is to be made clean as well.